Now, while Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews attacked Paul together and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God in a way contrary to the law. But just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo stood up to the Jews. If, we were, if it were a matter of some crime or serious piece of villainy, I would have been justified in accepting the complaint of you of the Jews. After some time, we don't know if this is the end of his entire extent in Corinth, or if this is the middle somewhere, or if this is the thing that made God come to him and kind of encourage him. The bunch of Jews got together and dragged him before the proconsul in order to accuse him. Now, what is he being accused of? We don't know if they're accusing him of breaking a Roman law, which some people have argued, because why would you bring them to a Roman official if they're not breaking a Roman law, or they're breaking some kind of Jewish law. Three factors point to the fact that there's probably a Jewish law in, in view. First, the reference to the worship of God singular. If this was a violation of the Roman law, they would most likely have used the plural form of God because that's what the Romans worship. Second is the reaction to Galileo that this is an internal matter about your own law. The fact that he doesn't really care. If it was a Roman law, he would care. Even if he didn't believe that they had violated Roman law, he would still hear the court case out so he could justly rule that it wasn't that big of a deal. And third is the emphasis on Paul's work in the synagogue and his teaching the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. It's possible the Jews deliberately made the charge ambiguous so that Galilee would think that Paul had offended against the Roman religion and that they would also have been suggesting that Paul was preaching a new religion. But as he listened, he realized this isn't as ambiguous as what they have said it is. So he didn't care about this. But Galileo, in his wisdom, says this. And notice again, it's the Greek who's defending Paul. It's the Greek. This is one of the points that Luke is trying to make in both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. That... One of the things he's trying to argue for is that the Christians have been persecuted tremendously. The Jews were exempted from persecution because of their beliefs and because of the Pax Ramona of Rome. But the Jews have been around for a long time. I mean, they were there before Rome showed up. So Rome had a pretty good idea of what the Jews were like, what they believed, what would make them mad, what would not make them mad, what disturbs the peace, how stubborn they are. Um, And so they exempted them of emperor worship and all this kind of stuff. When the Christians came along, many people, what we're seeing in the book of Acts so far, many Christians confused them with the Jews. Oh, you're just another sect within, within Judaism. They began to lash out against the Jews as well for whatever Christians were doing. But then as time went on, they began to realize the way was something completely distinct and unique. And it didn't take a genius after a while to see if Paul has experienced resistance from the Jews over and over again from city to city to city then the Romans can probably see maybe the Jews in the way are not the same and that they're, they're very distinct from each other. And so at that point, the Jews were no longer under the protection of persecution because they weren't Jewish. And so, and then as they became more and more Greek, everybody was like, well, we know you're not Jewish, you're Greeks. And so this began to become clear over time with the Jews hating on them and more and more Greeks joined the church that this wasn't Judaism. And so this is what then allowed for persecution to begin to happen against Christianity, one of many factors. And one of the reasons that Luke is writing is to try to convince that Theophilus and maybe other um, Roman and Greek leaders is that we should be exempted from persecution as well because, one, we're actually the fulfillment of Judaism. 
we're not a different religion. We're just a religion that has embraced what Judaism was looking forward to and pointing towards and the law and this writings all along. But the other thing he's trying to make a point of is, look, everywhere Paul and Stephen and Philip and Peter and even Jesus went, the Romans didn't really go against them that much. Maybe there were some Greeks that broke out against them, which we saw in Ephesus. But overall, the, 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 the governors, the officials, didn't really see what the Christians were doing as a big deal as a problem. I can give you Roman official after Roman official after Roman official and city after city after city who not only did not have a problem with what we were doing, but not only did they not really arrest us or persecute us in any way, but they also defended us on some cases. And so this is one of Luke's arguments for why they should be exempted from persecution. And so this is what we see with Galileo defending him. He says, look, if it were a matter of some crime or serious piece of villainy, I would have been justified in accepting the complaint of you Jews. But since it concerns points of disagreement about words and names and your own law, settle it yourselves. I will not be a judge for these things. Then he had them forced away from the judgment seat. So they all seized Sosthenes the president of the synagogue and began to beat him in front of the judgment seat, yet none of these things were of any concern to Galileo. This presents kind of a contradictory image of Galileo. He is a Roman official, and one of the most important things of Rome is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Do not do anything to disturb the peace. Rome had come out of multiple wars and civil wars and assassinations of leaders, and Augustus brought peace and stability, and he enforced this, and so did the ones after him, Claudius and Tiberius, or Tiberius and Claudius. Maintaining the law was very important to them, because the law maintained the peace. And if you got carried away and thought, well, I don't like you, and you just kind of was unjust, then you would create rebellions and riots, and then you would have to violently put them down, and that would cause manpower and money and disruption and burning down of things and all kinds of stuff. And you would then be responsible for disrupting the peace, and you would pay the consequences. We saw that with Pilate and, and other people when we were talking about the book of Luke towards the end. But if you didn't deal with violations of the law, legitimate violations, then that would cause problems. Da, 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 da. Roman officials became very adherent to laws, very legalistically speaking. So that if something did break out, they could say, I did everything that Rome expected me to do. This is their fault. And a lot of it was just everybody looking out for themselves. And that's what politics is, no matter what time period you're in. He's basically looking at this and saying, they violated no law whatsoever. You're angry because you have disagreements about who are leaders and theological ideas. So as a result of this, they all broke out against this leader of the synagogue thinking that they were together with Paul. Now, who are they? Is it an angry crowd of Jews or an angry crowd of Greeks? Because remember, Greeks have attacked them before. It may have been the Greeks who beat him in an anti-Semitic outburst, 
meaning you Jews have caused another problem, and they see Paul as a part of this Jewish faction, and now you've brought to Galileo, and the other things here, and we're just so sick and tired of you, and they break out and they begin to beat them down. That could be a possibility. He may also be dis, um But it's also possible that in honor-shame culture, the Jews beat their own synagogue leader because he had shamed them by not successfully prosecuting Paul. So in an honor-shame culture, we brought Paul before the Romans and we got him prosecuted. No, we didn't. And that's all your fault because you're the head of the synagogue and you didn't make a good enough argument to get him prosecuted. Therefore, you shamed the entire community. And now Paul, the stain on our community is still here. And so they begin to beat him down because he has disgraced them. Both of them are very possible. Both of them are very possible. Or it could be possible that the Jews beat the leader of the synagogue because he converted to Christianity. And now as a convert to Christianity, he's allowing Paul to happen, and that should not be okay. Why would Galileo allow this? If it's a Greek riot breaking out against the Jews and beating them, well... The Jews were inferior to them. They, they, they didn't, didn't like it. And then he could easily come in and put it down later or let it just span out and knowing that they'll get their energy out. And it could be that he could just say, I didn't do anything. I justly ruled the case. I dismissed it as not valuable. So this was not my fault. And eventually he could just let it happen. And then he could then come in and put it down and say, see, and then I also stopped it. And unlike today, there's no CTV cameras to say, well, you actually let it go on for about 20 or 30 minutes before you stop it. So you actually still are guilty. I mean, right? There's nothing to say that. And an angry, angry crowd, like they're not going to be like, well, it was actually 15 minutes. They don't have watches. And when you're angry and emotional, time flies when you're beating people down. They don't have any concept either. So it's his word versus their word. If it's the Jews breaking out them, you can say, well, this is a Jewish problem. They're hating on each other, and, and the same thing happens. But either way, what it's showing is that Jews are being beaten down, and he doesn't care. Which shows you that he's not ruling in Paul's favor because he likes Paul, or that he really truly cares about people and having the right thing done. He's ruling in Paul's favor because he's informing, enforcing Rome. Rome law, that's it. And it just shows you another example of how much stronger is this argument to Theophilus. That here you have a guy who hates Jews, doesn't like him, probably as well known through the Roman Empire as not liking Jews. Most people didn't like Jews, and most people were known when they did not like Jews. He doesn't even like Jews, he doesn't care about them, and even he's dismissing Paul's case as being not legitimate. And so he allows this to happen. And it's a very powerful statement when it says, yet none of these things were of any concern to Galileo. This is, once again, you think our government's corrupt. At least people are not being beaten an inch of their life in front of our governors. And he's just like, eh, more tea. So, I mean, it's bad. It's bad during this time period. Verse 18. Paul, after staying many more days in Corinth, and said farewell to the brothers, and sailed away to Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. He had his hair cut off at Sincheria, because he had made a vow. And when he reached Ephesus, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila behind there, and but he put himself 
but he himself went into the synagogue and addressed the Jews. Paul goes off to Sinchera and he cuts his hair. Sinchera is very close to Corinth. And he cuts his hair as the end of the vow. Now, this could have been that he was taking a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow is detailed out number six. And basically is you would dedicate yourself to a specific purpose to God. Or Sorry. You would dedicate yourself to a specific purpose for God for a certain amount of period of time. And it could be whatever length of time that you want. It had to be at least three months. But it could be any length of time that you wanted after that. And you weren't allowed, you had to live in the extra requirements of a priest. You were not allowed to be a priest. But the extra requirements of not touching anything dead, you're not even allowed to touch that. At Judaism, you can touch dead bodies, but then you're unclean for seven days. But at Nazareth, you're not allowed to touch anything dead. not allowed to eat anything that could be or has been fermented in any kind of way. And you're supposed to let your hair grow out during the time of that. That was a sign. Um, We know specifically that Samuel, the son of Hannah, and the book of Samuel, and Samson, the son of, well, Manoah and Manoah's wife, were never given her name, and Judges chapter 14, were both Nazarites. The difference is God told them that they were to be, well, God told Samson he was to be a Nazarite for life, and Hannah dedicated her son to be a Nazarite for life. But we don't really have any clear examples of Nazarites other than this thing here, um, as far as a, a, an actual character in the Bible. Some suspect that maybe John the Baptizer was a Nazarite by his conduct and actions and that kind of stuff. But for whatever reason, we're not told why Paul is taking a Nazarite vow, if it really specifically is a Nazarite vow. Um, but he is it's associated with letting his hair grow. And it's come to the end of his vow, and he has shaved his hair. And probably should have normally have done this in Jerusalem, in the temple, shaved his, cut his hair, and then dedicated his hair as a burnt offering to God to say that he successfully fulfilled it. Um, but because he's really far away from Jerusalem, and he has come to the end of his vow now, he's most likely cutting it off now, and then he'll carry his hair with him and go to Jerusalem and then do the, the purification rites that are necessary when he gets to Jerusalem. But why is this here? One of the things that this is here for probably is to show you that even though Paul did not believe that you had to fulfill requirements of the law in order to be saved, Paul still had no problem doing things of the law because the law is good. And this shows that even though he's a Christian and many Jews hate him, he's still acting like a Jew in many ways and still very adherent to his Jewish purposes and practices and background. And when he gets to Jerusalem and he's put on the big trial of his life, that's one of the arguments that he's going to make is, look, I have, I've been a Jew forever and I still consider myself a Jew and I still adhere to Jewish customs and things, but I will not let my Judaism get in the way of the gospel to the Gentiles. Um, he's not renouncing Judaism. He's just not allowing it to be an obstacle to the gospel. And there's a big, big difference between those. So he takes Rosquilla and Priscilla with him and they preach in Ephesus. Luke did not record what Silas and Timothy did, and he left Aquila and Priscilla behind and made his way to Caesarea in the northern part of Israel, and then went on to Jerusalem. And he would travel back to Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen the believers later. When they asked him to stay longer, verse 20, he would not consent, but he said farewell to them and added, I will come back to you again if God wills. 
Then he set sail from Ephesus, and when he arrived at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church at Jerusalem, and then went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, Paul left and went through the region of Galatia and Phyrgia, strengthening all the disciples. So this is the end, the official end of his second missionary journey. With Paul going back to Antioch, the church that sent him out, the origin of the beginning of his trip, Luke is emphasizing, you're like, okay, why mention that? Like, just went to Antioch and then left. Like, that doesn't seem worth mentioning, right? He's not even there. It doesn't say anything about going to the synagogue. It doesn't say anything about preaching. It doesn't say anything about converting people in any kind of way. And you're like, well, he kind of put that there to let you know that he returned home and it's the end of the journey, right? One of the reasons that Luke is most likely putting this here is to show you that Paul is still accountable to higher-ups. Um, he's not some lone preacher, rogue preacher, who's kind of doing and saying whatever he wants and going wherever he wants, like... It's very important to be accountable to the community of believers, especially if you're being sent out and funded and raising donations to take back to them in many ways. And so it's very important that leaders and teachers be surrendering what they're doing and what they're saying to a larger group of people. So one, everybody knows that they're not off on their own doing their own thing. And if there's suspect things that they say or do, you can at least say, well, no, there's a body of people that agree with me. Or if they do go off rails somewhere and somehow very, very minor or really big, there's a group that can correct them and put them back on track so that they don't go off really big one day. And I think we've talked about this before, but um, when, when God brought them to the promised land, the promised land had been full of high places where they had built altars to the pagan gods. And God said, I want you to tear those all down, and I want you to worship in the tabernacle and the tabernacle only. And many of them didn't do that. In fact, over and over in Kings it says, and Asa was a godly king, and Amaziah was a godly king, and Jehoshaphat was a godly king, but they did not tear down the high places. This is a notable strike against them and God's word. And one of the reasons is they, they justified it because they converted the altar to Yahweh. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. One, there would still probably be symbology up there to the pagan gods that the images could still lure you away. But a big problem is the worship of God on a giant hill out in the middle of Bodunk village is not regulated by the priesthood. It's not regulated. And so things can go off astray and nobody is there to hold them accountable and keep them on track. And if you go off stray in the backwoods there, and the backwoods there, and the backwoods there, then eventually those backwoods all grow, and then they meet each other in their concentric circles, and then the entire nations go astray, i.e. the book of Kings, right? When we get to Hebrews chapter 13, and many other places, but Hebrews 13 even makes this a very specific example that he says, do not stop gathering together as believers, a community. And one of the reasons is, I don't know what you think about Jordan Peterson on a political level, but as a clinical psychologist, he's absolutely phenomenal. And he understands human nature really well. And one of the points that he makes is one of the reasons that we get married, one of the reasons that we're in community, is because when we don't get married or we don't get in community, we get weird. We get really weird, right? We're all born weird. If you've ever had kids, they're weird, okay? They do weird things. They have really <laughs> weird ideas. Sometimes they're 
sometimes the comments are like borderline like psychopathic killer comment, but they just don't really realize right yet that like that's actually a big deal that you just said that. Like I'll let this out for my daughter's purpose, but we found a piece of paper with all these cuss words written all over it by our youngest one. And we asked her about it. And she's like, these are just words I heard in the neighborhood and that kind of stuff. What are what do they mean? We're like, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's like, right? It's like, you get weird. You get weird, okay? And, and this is why, like, you kind of tell your kid, like, yeah, like, look, I don't, really in the grand scheme of things, you're not a bad person for chewing with your mouth open, but people won't want to eat with you and they'll stop being your friends if you keep doing this, so don't do that, right? There's nothing wrong with what you're doing right now with your mouth or your fingers or whatever, but people will think you're weird and they won't want to be with you anymore and you won't have friends and I love you too much to not have friends, right? You had those conversations, like, there's nothing morally wrong with what you're doing, but it's just weird and our culture thinks it's weird and they don't want to be friends with you and I love you so much I want you to have friends. Or you get married, and then, like, your wife or your husband, like, kind of knees you or kicks you under the table, like, what the heck did you just say that for, right? Like, that's not appropriate, because you were just caught up in the moment and something came out of your head. Because this is what happens, right? If you get isolated, we've seen this in the movie Castaway, right? He starts talking to a volleyball because he's so desperate for community. And then when you get weird, every single movie you watch... Women, sorry, but you become the crazy old ladies out in the woods with all the cats that cackle at the top of your lungs. And you have these weird thoughts and ideas. And men, don't think I'm picking on them. Men, you get the grumpy, angry men with the shotguns up in the mountains that shoot everything that come to your doorpost. Right? This is what we see in movies. And there's a reason for that. Because we get weird without community. And God is putting us in communities so we don't get weird. And this is one of the reasons that you always make sure you're connected to a community, especially a theologically sound community, because we've met people, right, who are like, I don't need the church anymore. The church is corrupt, full of messy people. <laughs> you're messy too. That's why you're not there. So, um, and like, I can worship God on my own. And then you start talking to them, you're like, ooh, those theological beliefs are kind of weird. And they're wrong. You didn't used to have that when you were a part of the church. And they're like, oh, there's nothing wrong. That's why I left the church. They wouldn't allow me to... Yeah, there's a reason why they wouldn't allow you to do that. Because that's not biblical. That's not Christian, right? And if you've, you've talked to enough people who are isolated long enough, they get weird. And then they get weird in their theology. And it's very important that Paul is connected to a community. Even though he's off around the entire world, it's even more important. Because the more he travels around, the harder it is going to be for him to find community to be accountable to. Now, luckily, Paul's missionary journeys are not as shotgun and machine gun as what we thought. He's actually spending three years in one place and a year and a half in another place and that kind of stuff. But still, a lot of these are new converts. And, and, and every single person at one point in their life should, at, at all times in life, if all possible, I'm not saying like, thus saith Yahweh, but you should as best your ability have somebody who's discipling and mentoring you and somebody you're discipling and mentoring in your life. Um, just to make sure that you're just you're you're part of the community and you're actively involved and somebody's involved in your life and you just don't get weird. And, and this is important that we understand how important community is. Yes, yes. There's nothing wrong with you going out for a week on a mountain, totally isolating, just you and God, and and you can pray on your own. Yes, yes, but not month after month after month, year after year after year. We need to be in community. 
We need to be in community. And sometimes it's good just to go back to people who said, we've been praying for you. We've been supporting you. Yes, the world is crazy and weird out there, but you've got a place here where we're not going to try to kill you, right? And so <laughs> for Paul, that's a big deal. And so Paul's making sure that he's staying true to the community. And so what Luke is showing is that he's holding accountable. He's going out and strengthening. He's coming back and being strengthened himself. He's going out and being strengthening and going out and being strengthened. And the entire time he's being held accountable by people who are over him. And then he goes out to the people and he holds them accountable by the people that are under him. And he's keeping this framework very well established. And Paul, Luke, is also showing how well organized these are and structured because he's going to, through these three missionary journeys, and one, Jews, Paul's major speech is going to be first the missionary journey to the Jews. And then the second major speech, he's going to speak to the Greeks in Athens. And then the third, he's going to speak to Christians that have already been in the faith for a long time. And what he's showing here with these three missionary journeys is that Paul's a part of a bigger plan, a bigger purpose. He is accountable people, holding people accountable, but this is a multi-ethnic diverse group of people as well. That he is intentionally going out to and he's gathering them all together into a unique community of the new covenant believers of Christ. And this is all intentional. This is all intentional.